stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. I think, I think we lost him. But at what cost? Look at this place. We've got to keep moving. I'd hate to meet whatever hoarder scum lives here. This is my apartment. Oh, dear God. Relax. This way, we can at least ring in the end of the world with a drink. End of the world? I'll be damned if I'm dying in a pig pen to the sound of Brad singing. I, uh, actually thought he was pretty good. (laughs) Besides, it's not like we've got a choice. Don't be a pessimist. I will not allow Oversheen to win. What's this? Ah, don't touch that. That's one of my best stories. A finalist for the Nebula Award. You'll break... Mm, I said don't touch it! Sabbath Wine by Barbara Krasnoff. Ah, rare is the story that is so beautiful, so steeped with thematic... Yes, theme. Symbolism? Something's coming to me. Some way to take on Brad. King, I'll be needing that drink after all. Something to oil the gears of my intellect that I may solve this problem when no other can. Yeah, all right. I was hoping for something other than beer. You'll taste it less after the first one. Whatever. Two, the colleague we left behind. You mean Sam? Yes, yes, to Sam! To Sam. Sabbath Wine by Barbara Krasnoff My name's Malka Hirsch, the girl said. I'm nine. I'm David Richards, the boy said. I'm almost thirteen. The two kids were sitting on the bottom step of a run-down brownstone on the edge of the Brooklyn neighborhood of Brownsville. It was late afternoon on a hot summer day, and people were just starting to drift home from work, lingering on the stoops and fire escapes to catch any hint of a breeze before going up to their stifling flats. The children had been sitting there companionably for a while, listening to a chorus of gospel singers who were practicing in the first-floor front apartment at the top of the stairs. Occasionally, the music paused as a male voice offered instructions and encouragement. It was during one of those pauses that they introduced themselves to each other. The girl looked up at her new friend a bit doubtfully. "'You don't mind talking to me?' she asked. "'Most big boys don't like talking to girls my age. My cousin Shlomo, he only wanted to talk to the older girl who lived down the street and who wore short skirts and a scarf around her neck.' "'I don't mind,' said David. "'I like kids. And anyway, I'm dead. So I guess that makes a difference.' Above them, the enthusiastic chorus started again. As the soprano wailed a high lament, the girl shivered in delight. I wish I could sing like that, she complained. 
It's called Right Up in the Chariot, said the boy. It's an old song, maybe even from slavery times. When I was little, my mama used to sing it to me when she washed the white folks' laundry. It's nice, the girl said. She had short, dark brown hair that just reached her shoulders and straight bangs that touched her eyebrows. She had pulled her rather dirty knees up and was resting her chin on them, her arms wrapped around her legs. I've heard this one before, but I didn't know what it was called. They practice every Thursday and I come here to listen. Why don't you go in? asked the boy. He was just at that stage of adolescence where the body seems to be growing too fast. His long legs were stretched out in front of him while he leaned back on his elbows. He had a thin, cheerful face, set off by bright, intelligent eyes, and hair cropped so close to his skull that it looked almost painted on. I'm sure they wouldn't mind, and you could hear better. The girl grinned. Papa would mind, she said. He'd mind plenty. He'd think I was going to get converted or something. No wonder I'd never seen you before, said the boy. I usually just come on Sundays. Other days I... He paused. Well, usually I just come on Sundays. The music continued against a background of voices from the people around them. A couple of floors above, a baby cried, and two men argued in sharp, dangerous tones. A gang of boys ran past, laughing, ignoring the two sitting outside the brownstone. A man sat on a cart laden with what looked like a family's possessions. Obviously in no hurry, he let the horse take its time as it proceeded down the cobblestone street. The song ended, and a sudden clatter of chairs and conversation indicated that the rehearsal was over. The two kids stood and moved to a nearby street lamp so they wouldn't get in the way of the congregation leaving the brownstone in twos and threes. Malka looked at her new companion. Wait a minute, she said. Did you say you were dead? Uh-huh, David said. Well, at least that's what my daddy told me. She looked at him doubtfully. You ain't, she said. And then when he didn't say anything. Really? He nodded affably. She reached out carefully and poked him in the arm. You ain't, she repeated. If you were a ghost or something, I couldn't touch you. He shrugged and stared down at the street. Unwilling to lose her new friend, the girl quickly added, It don't matter. If you want to be dead, that's okay with me. I don't want to be dead, said the boy. I don't even know if I really am. It's just what Daddy told me. Okay, she said. She swung slowly around the pole, holding on with one hand, while the boy stood patiently, his hands in the pockets of his rather worn pants. David suddenly grinned. But I know what he's got under his coat, he said, and pointed at a tall man hurrying down the street, his jacket carefully covering a package. It's a bottle, said Malka scornfully. That's obvious. It's moonshine, said David laughing. How do you know? asked Malka, peering at the man curiously. My daddy sells the stuff, said David. Out of a candy store over on DeMont Street. Malka was impressed. Is he a gangster? she asked. I saw a movie about a gangster once. David grinned. Nah, he said. Just a low-rent bootlegger. 
If my mama ever heard about it, she'd come back here and make him stop in a hurry, you bet. My mama's dead, Malka said. Where's yours? David shrugged. I don't know, he said. She left one day and never came back. He paused and asked curiously. You all don't go to church, right? Nope. Well, what do you do? The girl smiled and tossed her hair back. I'll show you, she said. Would you like to come to a Sabbath dinner? Malka and her father lived in the top floor of a modern five-story apartment building, about six blocks from the Brownstone Church. Somewhere between there and home, David had gone his way. Malka didn't quite remember when. It didn't matter much, she decided. She had a plan, and she could tell David about it later. She stood in the main room that acted as a parlor, dining room, and kitchen. It was sparsely but comfortably furnished. Besides a small wooden table that sat by the open window, there was a coal oven, a sink with cold running water, a cupboard against one wall, and an overloaded bookcase against another. A faded flowered rug covered the floor. It had obviously seen several tenants come and go. Malka's father was sitting at the table reading a newspaper by the slowly waning light, his elbow on the windowsill, his head leaning on his hand. A small plate with the remains of his supper sat nearby. He hadn't shaved for a while. A short, dark beard covered his face. Papa, said Malka. Her father winced, as though something hurt him. But he didn't take his eyes from the book. Yes, Malka, he asked. Papa, today is Thursday, isn't it? He raised his head slowly and looked at her. Perhaps it was the beard, or because he worked so hard at the furriers where he spent his days curing animal pelts, but his face seemed more worn and sad than ever. Yes, daughter, he said quietly. Today is Thursday. She sat opposite him and folded her hands neatly in front of her which means that tomorrow is Friday, and tomorrow night is the Sabbath. He smiled at her. Now, Malka, when was the last time you saw your papa in a synagogue, rocking and mumbling useless prayers with the old men? This isn't how I brought you up. You know that I won't participate in any bourgeois religious ceremonies, she finished with him. Yes, I know, but I was thinking, Papa, that I would like to have a real Sabbath. The kind that you used to have with Mama, just once, as... Her face brightened, as though she had just come up with the perfect description. As an educational experience. Her father sighed and closed his book. An educational experience, huh? He asked. I see. How about this? If you want, on Saturday, we can go to Prospect Park. We'll sit by the lake and feed the swans. Would you like that? That would be nice, said Malka. But it's not the same thing, is it? He shrugged. No, Malka, you're right, it isn't. Across the alley, a clothesline squeaked as somebody pulled on it. An infant cried and somebody cursed in a loud combination of Russian and Yiddish. And what brought on this sudden religious fervor, he asked. You're not going to start demanding I grow my beard to my knees and read nothing but holy books, are you? No, Papa, Malka said, exasperated. Nothing like that. I made friends with this boy today named David. 
He's older than I am, over twelve, and his father doesn't approve of religion. But his mama sang in the church that I listen to sometimes. We listened to them rehearse today, and I thought, maybe I could invite him here and show him what we do. Her voice trailed off as she saw his face. His mama sang in a church, her father asked a little tensely. And you go in and listen? No, of course not. I sit outside. It's the church on the first floor of that house on Rimson Ave, the one where they sing all those wonderful songs. Ah, her father said enlightened and then sighed. Well, I shouldn't be pig-headed about this. Your mama always said I could be very pig-headed about my political convictions. You are a separate individual and deserve to make up your own mind. And it's really for educating David, said Malka eagerly. He smiled at her. Would that make you happy, Malka? he said. To have a Sabbath dinner for you and your friend. Just this once. Yes, just this once, she said happily. With everything that goes with it. Of course, her father said. I did a little overtime this week. I can ask Sarah, who works over at the Delicatessen, for a couple pieces chicken, a loaf of bread, and maybe some soup and noodles. I know we have some candles put by. And you have Grandpa's old prayer book, she said eagerly. Yes, I have that, said her father. So all we need is the wine, said Malka triumphantly. Her father's face suddenly fell. He sighed and sat back. So all we need is the wine. He thought for a moment and then nodded. Moisha will know. He knows everybody in the neighborhood. If anyone has wine to sell, he'll know about it. It's going to be dark soon, said Malka. Is it too late to ask? He smiled and stood. Not too late at all. He's probably in the park. So, Abe, Moisha said frowning to Malka's father. You are going to betray your ideals and count out to the religious authorities. You, who were nearly sent to Siberia for writing articles linking religion to the consistent poverty of the masses. You, who were carried bodily out of your father's synagogue for refusing to wear a hat at your brother's wedding. Malka's father had immediately spotted Moisha, an older, slightly overweight man with thinning hair. On the well-worn bench where he habitually spent each summer evening, but after trying to explain what he needed, only to be interrupted by Moisha's irritable rant, Abe finally shrugged and walked a few steps away. Malka followed. There are some boys playing baseball over there, he told her. Why don't you go watch the game and let me talk to Moisha by myself? Okay, Papa, Malka said and ran off. The small urban park was full of people driven out of their apartments by the heat. Kids ran through screaming taking advantage of the fact that their mothers were still cleaning up after dinner and therefore not looking out for misbehavior. Occasionally, one of the men who occupied the benches near the small plot of brown grass would stand and yell, Sammy, stop fighting with that boy! Then, content to have done his duty by his offspring, he would sit down and the kids would proceed as though nothing happened. Her father walked back to the bench and sat next to his friend who now sat disconsolately batting a newspaper against his knee. Moisha, just listen for a minute, he began. But before he could finish, 
Moisha handed Abe his newspaper, climbed on the bench, and pointed an accusing finger at a thin man sitting two benches over who had just lit a cigarette. You, Moisha yelled. Hirsch, I have a bone to pick with you. What the hell were you doing writing that dreck about the Pennsylvania steel strike? How dare you use racialism to try to cover up the crimes of the AFL in subverting the strike? They were scabs, yelled back the little man, gesturing with his cigarette to emphasize his point. The fact that they were Negroes is not an excuse. They were workers trying to feed their families in the face of overwhelming oppression, Moisha yelled back. If the AFL had any respect for the people they were trying to organize, they could have brought all the workers into the union and the bosses wouldn't have been able to break the strike. You ignore the social and cultural problems, yelled Hirsch. You ignore the fact that you're a schmuck, roared Moisha. Will you get down and act like a human being for a minute, said Abe, hitting his friend with the newspaper. I have a problem. Moisha shrugged and climbed down. At the other bench, Hirsch made an obscene gesture and went back to dourly sucking on his cigarette. Okay, I'm down, said Moisha. So tell me, what's your problem? Like I was saying, said Abe, I'm going to have a Sabbath meal. Moisha peered at him curiously. New? he asked. You got yourself a girlfriend finally? Abe shook his head irritably. No, I don't have a girlfriend, he said. Too bad, his friend said, crossing his legs and surveying the park around him. You can only mourn for so long, you know. A young man like you, you shouldn't be alone like some maltacocker like me. Abe smiled despite himself. No, I just... His voice trailed off. He looked for a moment to where Malka stood with the boy, just a little taller than she, both watching the baseball game. That must be her new friend, he thought, probably from the next neighborhood over. His clothes seemed a bit too small for his growing frame. Abe wondered whether he had parents and if whether they could afford to dress their child properly. It's just this once, he finally said, a gift for a child. Okay, said Moisha. So what do you want from me? Absolution for abrogating your political ideals? I want wine. Ah. The old man turned and looked at Abe. I see. You've got the prayer book, you've got the candles, you've got the challah, but the alcohol, that's another thing. You could have come up with this idea last year before the geniuses in Washington gave us the gift of prohibition. I want to do it right said Abe. No grape juice and nothing made in somebody's bathtub. And nothing illegal. I don't want to make the gangsters any richer than they are. Well, Moisha shrugged. If you're going to make this an ethical issue, then I can't help. Oh, come on, said Abe impatiently. It's only been a few months since Prohibition went into effect. I'm sure somebody's got a few bottles of wine stashed away. I'm sure they do, Moisha said but they're not going to give them to you. And don't look at me, he said quickly. What I got stashed away isn't what you drink at the Sabbath table. Hell. Abe stood up and shook his head. I made a promise. You got a cigarette? 
Moisha handed him one, and then as he lit a match, said, Hey, why don't you go find a rabbi? Abe blew out some smoke and stared at him. I said I wanted to make one Sabbath meal. I didn't say I wanted to attend services. Moisha laughed. No, I mean for your wine. When Congress passed Prohibition, the rabbis and priests and other religious big shots, they put up a fuss, so now they get to buy a certain amount for their congregations. You want some booze? Go to a rabbi. Abe stared at him. You're joking, right? Moisha continued to grin. Truth. I heard it from a Hasidic friend of mine. We get together, play a little chess, argue. He told me that he had to go with his reb to the authorities because the old man can't speak English, so they could sign the papers and prove he was a real rabbi. Now he's got the right to buy a few cases a year so families can say the blessing on the Sabbath and get drunk on Passover. Abe nodded his head, amused. Figures, he thought for a moment. There's a shul over on Livonia Ave, where my friend's son had his bar mitzvah. Maybe I should try there. If you've got a friend who goes there, Moisha suggested. Why not simply get the wine from him? Abe took a long drag on his cigarette and shook his head. No, I don't want to get him in trouble with his rabbi. I'll go ask myself. Thanks, Moisha. Think nothing of it. Suddenly, the old man's eyes narrowed, and he jumped up on the bench again, yelling to a man entering the park. Sam, you capitalist son of a bitch! I saw that letter you wrote in the Daily Forward! Abe walked over to his daughter. You heard? He asked quietly. We'll go over to the synagogue right now and see what the rabbi can do for us. Yes, Papa, she said happily and added. This is David. He's my new friend that I told you about. David, this is my father. How do you do, Mr. Hirsch? Said David politely. How do you do, David? Abe said. It's nice to meet you. I'm glad Malka has made a new friend. Mr. Hirsch, David said, you don't have to go to that rabbi if you don't want to. I heard my father say that he and his business partners got some Jewish wine that he bought from a rabbi who didn't eat it all, and I'm sure he could sell you a bottle. Abe smiled. Thank you, David, he said. But as I told my friend, I'd rather not get involved with something illegal. You understand, he added. And I don't mean to insult your father. That's okay. David said. He turned and whispered to Malka. You go ahead with your daddy. I'll go find mine. You come get me if you need me for anything. He's usually at the candy store on the corner of Dumont and Saratoga. Okay, Malka whispered back. And if we do get wine, I'll come get you and you can come to our Sabbath dinner. Abe stared at the two children for a moment, then pulled the cigarette out of his mouth, tossed it away, turned, and began walking. Malka waved at David and followed her father out of the park. The synagogue was located in a small storefront. The large glass windows had been papered over for privacy. Congregation Anshamat was painted carefully in Hebrew lettering on the front door. Evening services were obviously over. Two elderly men were hobbling slowly out of the store, arguing loudly in Yiddish. Abe waited until they had passed, took a deep breath, and walked in. Malka followed behind him. The bare, whitewashed room was taken up by several rows of folding chairs. 
some wooden bookcases at the back, and a large cabinet covered by a beautifully embroidered cloth. A powerfully built man with a long black beard that bore streaks of white was collecting books from some of the chairs. Malka went to the front to admire the embroidery. Abe walked over to the man. Rabbi, he said tentatively. The rabbi turned and straightened. He stared at Abe doubtfully. Do I know you? he asked slowly. I was here for Jacob Bernstein's son Maxie's bar mitzvah two months ago, said Abe. You probably don't remember me. The rabbi examined him for a minute or two and then nodded. No, I do remember you. You sat in a corner with your arms folded and glowered like the angel of death when the boy sang his Torah portion. Abe shrugged. I promised his father I'd attend. I didn't promise I'd participate. So, said the rabbi, you are one of those new radicals, the ones who are too smart to believe in the Almighty. I simply believe that we have to save ourselves rather than wait for the Almighty to do it for us, Abe rejoined. And so, said the rabbi, since you obviously have no respect for the beliefs of your fathers, why are you here? Abe bit his lip, ready to turn and leave. A small voice next to him asked, Papa, is it safe here? He looked down. Malka was standing next to him, looking troubled and a little frightened. One moment, he said to the rabbi and walked to the door, which was open to let the little available air in. Of course it's safe, daughter, he said quietly to Malka. Why wouldn't it be? Well, she began and then said, I just... There isn't a good place to hide. I thought synagogues had to have good hiding places. His hand went out to touch her hair, to reassure her, but then stopped. Malkala, he whispered, you run outside and play. You let your papa take care of this. Don't worry about anything. It will all turn out fine. Her face cleared, as though whatever evil thoughts had troubled her had completely disappeared. Okay, Papa, she said and left. Abe took a breath and went back into the room where the rabbi was waiting, a bit impatiently. This is the story, he said. My little girl is... Well, she wants a Sabbath meal. The large man cocked his head. So new? Your child has more sense than you do, so have the Sabbath meal. For a Sabbath meal, said Malka's father. I need wine. He paused and added, I would be grateful if you could help me with this. I see. The rabbi smiled ironically. In other words, you want to make a party, maybe for a few of your radical friends, and you thought... The rabbi is allowed to get wine for his congregation for the Sabbath and for the holy days. And if I tell him I want it for my little girl... Abe stepped forward, furious. You have the gall to call me a liar, he growled. You religious fanatics are all alike. I come to you with a simple request, a little wine, so I can make a Friday night blessing for my little girl. And what do you do? You spit in my face. You spit on your people and your religion, said the rabbi, 
his voice rising as well. You come here because you can't get drunk legally anymore. So you think maybe you'll come and take advantage of the stupid, unworldly rabbi. He also took a step forward so that he was almost nose to nose with Abe. You think I'm some kind of idiot? Malka's father didn't retreat. I know you get more wine than you need, he shouted. I know how this goes. The authorities give you so much per person, so maybe you exaggerate the size of your congregation just a bit, huh? And sell the rest? The rabbi shook his head. And what if I do? He said. Does this look like the shul of a rich bootlegger? I have greenhorns fresh off the boat who are trying to support large families, men who are trying to get their wives and children here, boys whose families can't afford to buy them a prayer book for their bar mitzvah, and you, the radical, somebody who makes speeches about the rights of poor people. You would criticize me for selling a few extra bottles of wine. And so if you're willing to sell wine, yelled Abe, why not sell it to me? a fellow Jew, rather than some goyish bootlegger. There was a pause, and both men stared at each other, breathing heavily. Because he doesn't know any better, the rabbi finally said quietly. You should. Now get out of my shul. Abe strode out, muttering under his breath, and headed down the block. After about five blocks, he had walked off his anger, and he slowed down, finally sitting heavily on the steps of a nearby stoop. I'm sorry, Malka, he said quietly. Maybe I can go find the people that the rabbi sells to. But David said his father could get us the wine, said Malka, sitting next to him. David said that his father and his friends... They have a drugstore where they sell hooch to people who want them. Lots of hooch. She repeated the word, pleased at its grown-up sound. Her father grinned. Malka, my sweet little girl, he said. Do you know what your mother would have done to me had she known that her baby was dealing in illegal alcohol? And by the way, he added, I like your friend David. Very polite child. He's not. A child, Malka said, stung. He's almost thirteen. Ah, practically a man, said her father, stroking his chin. So, and his father, the bootlegger, he would sell to someone not of his race. Well, of course, said Malka, a little unsure of herself. The question hadn't occurred to her. David said they were looking for somebody to buy the kosher wine, and who else to sell it to but somebody who can really use it. Even from the outside, the candy store didn't look promising, or even open. The windows were pasted over with ads, some of which were peeling off, when Malka's father looked through the glass, shading his eyes with one hand. It was too dark inside to see much. You stay out here he said finally. This is not a place for little girls. He took a breath and pushed the door open. A tiny bell tinkled as he stepped through. Malka, too curious to obey, quietly went in after him and stood by the door, 
trying to make herself as small as possible so nobody would notice her. The store looked as unfriendly inside as it did out. A long counter, which had obviously once been used to serve sodas and ice cream, ran along the right wall of the store. It was empty and streaked with dust, and the shelves behind it were bare except for a few glasses. At the back of the store, there was a glass case in which a few cans and dry-looking cakes sat. The rest of the small space was taken up by several round tables. Only one was occupied. Three men sat, enveloped by smoke, playing cards. One was short and fat. He scowled at the cards with a cigarette hung, unlit, from the corner of his mouth. A second, much younger and much slimmer, was carefully dressed in a brown suit with a red tie. He had a thin mustache, and his hair was slicked back so that it looked, Malka thought, like it was always wet. The third man, she decided, must be David's father. He had David's long, thin face and slight build, but the humor that was always dancing in David's wide eyes had long ago disappeared from his. A long, pale scar ran from his left eye to the corner of his mouth, intensifying his look of a man who wasn't to be trifled with. As she watched, the man scowled at his cards, reached into his pocket, and pulled out a small flask. He took a pull from it and replaced it without taking his eyes off his cards. Malka's father waited for a minute or two and then cleared his throat. None of the men looked up. I think you're in the wrong store, white man, the fat man said. Abe put his hands in his pockets. I was told I could purchase a bottle or two of wine here, he said. You a fed? asked the man with the slicked back hair. Only a fed would be stupid enough to walk in here by himself. Ain't no fed, the fat man said. Listen to him. He's a Jew. Ain't no fed Jews. There's Izzy Einstein, said the man with the hair. He arrested three guys in Coney just yesterday. I read it in the paper. Too skinny to be Izzy Einstein, said the fat man. Nah, he's just your everyday ordinary white man looking for some cheap booze. I was told I could buy wine here, repeated Abe calmly, although Malka could see that his hands, which he kept in his pockets, were trembling slightly. I was told you had kosher wine. The man with the scar stood slowly and came over to him as the other two watched carefully. Closer, you could see that his suit was worn and not as clean as it could be. He walked slowly, carefully, as though he wasn't sober and didn't want to give it away. He didn't acknowledge the boy who followed him solicitously, as though ready to catch his father should he fall. When he reached Abe, he just stopped and waited silently. So? Abe asked. You have wine for sale? My landlord is a Jew, said David's father, challenging. So's mine, said Abe, and I'll bet they're both sons of bitches. There was a moment of silence, and then a corner of the man's mouth twitched. Okay, he said. Maybe we can do business. His two colleagues relaxed. 
The man with the hair swept up the cards and began shuffling them. Where did you hear about me? Your son David, said Abe. He suggested I contact you. My son David told you, the man repeated, his eyes narrowing. Yes, said Abe puzzled. Earlier today. Is there a problem? There was a pause, and then the man shook his head slowly. No, no problem. Yeah, I've got some of that kosher wine you were talking about. I can give you two bottles for three dollars each. Abe took a breath. That's expensive, he said. Those are the prices, the man shrugged. Hard to get specialized product these days. David stood on his toes and whispered up at his father. The man didn't give any indication that he had heard the boy, but bit his lip for a moment and then said, Okay, look, I can give you two bottles for five dollars, and that's because you come with a, a family recommendation. Done, said Abe. He put out a hand. Abe Hirsch. David's father took the hand and the two men shook briefly. Sam Richards, he said. You want to pick your merchandise up in the morning? Abe shook his head. I've got to work early, he said. Can I pick it up after work? Done, the man said. Abe turned and walked toward the door and then suddenly turned back. I apologize. I apologize. He said, shaking his head. I'm an idiot. David, your son, has been invited to my house for dinner tomorrow night, and I have not asked his father's permission, and of course, you are also invited as well. Sam stared at him. You have invited my son to your house for dinner. Abe shrugged his shoulders. Hey, Sam, called the well-dressed man. You can't go nowhere tomorrow night. We've got some business to take care of uptown at the sugar cane. Sam ignored his friend and looked at Malka, who was standing next to her father, scratching an itch on her leg and grinning at the success of her plan. This your little girl? It was Abe's turn to stare. He looked down at Malka, who was nodding madly, delighted at the idea of another guest at their Sabbath meal. He then looked back at Sam. Okay, said Sam. What time? Around 5 p.m., Abe said and gave the address. Sam turned around. We don't have to be uptown until 9, he said. Plenty of time. He turned back to Abe. Okay, Sam said. I'll bring the wine with me. You make sure you have the money. Just because you're feeding me, us, dinner... Don't mean the drinks come free. Of course, said Abe. At 5 p.m. that evening, everything was ready. The table had been pulled away from the window. It was decorated with a white tablecloth from the same woman who had sold Abe a boiled chicken and a carrot simis. Settings for four, two extra chairs, borrowed from the carpenter who lived across the hall, two candles, and at Abe's place, his father's old prayer book. Abe, wearing his good jacket despite the heat, 
and with a borrowed yarmulke perched on his head, surveyed the scene. Well, Malka, he said, how does that look? It's perfect, said Malka happily, running from one end of the room to the other to admire the table from different perspectives. Almost on cue, somebody knocked on the door. It's David, Malka yelled. David, just a minute. I'm sure he heard you, said Abe, smiling. The super in the basement probably heard you. He walked over and opened the door. Sam stood there, a small suitcase in his hand. He had obviously made some efforts towards improving his personal appearance. He was freshly shaven, worn a clean shirt, and there was a spit polish on his shoes. David dashed out from behind his father. You see, he told Malka, everything worked out. My daddy brought the wine like he said, and I made him dress up because I said it was going to be religious, and Mama wouldn't have let him come to church all messed up. Right, Daddy? You sure did, David, said Sam, smiling at the boy. He even made me wash behind my ears. He then raised his eyes and looked hard at Abe, as if waiting for the other man to challenge him. But Abe only nodded. Please sit down, he said. Be comfortable. Malka, stop dancing around like that. You're making me dizzy. Malka obediently stopped twirling, but she still bounced a bit in place. David, guess what? She said. There's a lady who lives across the alley from us. When it's hot, she walks around all day in a man's t-shirt and shorts. You can see her when she's in the kitchen. It's really funny. You want to come out on the fire escape and watch? David suddenly looked troubled and stared up at his father. Is it okay, Daddy? He asked. His lower lip trembled slightly. I don't want to get anyone mad at me. Sam took a breath and then, with an obvious effort, smiled at his son. It's okay, he said. I'll be right here, keeping an eye on you. Nothing bad will happen. The boy's face brightened and he turned to Malka. Let's go, he said. The two children ran to the window and clambered noisily onto the fire escape. Sam put the suitcase onto one of the chairs, opened it, and took out two bottles of wine. Here they are, he said. Certified kosher, according to the man I got it from. You got the five bucks? Abe handed Sam five crumpled dollars. Here you are, he said, as promised. You want a drink before we start? The man nodded. Abe picked up one of the bottles, looked at it for a moment, and then shook his head, exasperated. Look at me, the genius, he said. I never thought about a corkscrew. Sam shrugged, took a small pocket knife out of his pocket, cut off the top of the cork, and pushed the rest of it into the bottle with his thumb. Abe took the bottle and poured generous helpings for both of them. They each took a drink. Outside, Malka sat at the edge of the fire escape, her legs dangling over the side, while David sat next to her, his legs folded. A dirty pigeon fluttered down onto the railing and stared at the children, obviously hoping for a stray crumb. When it didn't come, it started to clean itself. The boy pointed to a window. 
No, that's not her, said Malka. That's the man who lives next door to her. He has two dogs, and he's not supposed to have any pets, so he's always yelling at the dogs to stop barking, or he'll get kicked out. The children laughed. Startled, the bird flew away. So, said Abe. Yeah, said Sam. What happened? Sam took a breath, drained his glass, and poured another. He had gone out to shoot rabbits, said Sam slowly. I had just got home from the war in Europe. We were living with my wife's family in Alabama, and we were making plans to move up north to Chicago where I could get work and David could get schooled better. He was sitting on the porch reading, and I got mad and told him to not be so lazy. Get up there and shoot us some meat for dinner. When he wasn't home by supper, I figured he got himself lost. He was always going off exploring and forgetting about what he was supposed to do. He looked off into the distance, remembering. After dark, the preacher from my wife's church came by and said that there had been trouble. A white woman over in the next county had complained that somebody had looked in her window when she was undressed. A lynch mob went out and David saw them and got scared and ran. He wasn't doing anything wrong. But he was a Negro boy with a gun and they caught him and... He choked for a moment, then reached for his glass and swallowed the entire thing at a gulp. Wordlessly, Abe refilled his glass. My wife and her sister and the other women, they went and took him down and brought him home. He was... They had cut him and burned him and... My boy. My baby. A single tear slowly made its way down his cheek, tracing the path of the scar. My wife and I... We didn't get along so good after that. After a while, I cut and run. Came up here. And David... He came with me. For a moment, they just sat. We lived in Odessa, said Abe, and when Sam looked puzzled, added, That's a city in the Ukraine near Russia. I moved there with the baby after my wife died. It was 1905, and there was a lot of unrest. Strikes, riots people being shot down in the streets. Many people were angry. And when people get angry, they blame the Jews. He smiled sourly. I and my friends, we were young and strong and rebellious. We were different from the generation before us. We weren't going to sit like the old men and wait to be slaughtered. I sent Malka to the synagogue with the other children. There were hiding places there. They would be safe. And I went to help defend our homes. At least you had that, Sam said bitterly. Abe shook his head. We were idiots. We had no idea how many there would be, how organized. Hundreds were hurt and killed. 
my neighbors, my friends. Somebody hit me. I don't know who or with what. I don't remember what happened after that. I... He paused. I do remember screaming and shouting all around me, houses burning, but it didn't seem real, didn't seem possible. I ran to the synagogue. I was going to get Malka, and we would leave this madness, go to America where people are sane and children are safe. Safe, repeated Sam softly. The two men looked at each other with tired recognition. But when I got there, they wouldn't let me in. The rabbi had hidden the children behind the bima, the place where the Torah was kept, but they said I shouldn't see what had been done to her. That she had been. She was only nine years old. Abe's voice trailed away. He took a breath. The children out on the fire escape had become bored with the neighbors. Do you know how to play rock, paper, scissors? David asked. Here, we have to face each other. Now there are three ways you can hold your hand. Does she know? Asked Sam. No, said Abe. And I don't have the heart to tell her. David knows, said his father. At least I told him. I thought maybe if he knew he'd be at rest, but I don't think he believed me and... Well, I'm sort of glad, because it means... He is still here, with you. Yes, Sam whispered. The two men sat and drank together while they watched their murdered children play in the fading sunlight. Barbara Krasnoff has had short stories appear in over 30 print and online publications, including Sabbath Wine which was published in Clockwork Phoenix 5 and was a finalist for the 2016 Nebula Award for Short Stories. Other publications where you can find her work include Mythic Delirium, Abyss and Apex, Space and Time, and Apex, among others. When not producing weird fiction, she earns her living as a freelance tech writer and, just for fun, she investigates what the animals and objects in our world are really thinking in her daily backstory series on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, hashtag their backstories. She is a member of the Tabula Rasa Writers Group and can be found at brooklynwriters.com or on Twitter as at Barb K. Kim Rogers is an AMC actress with credits at both Kaleidocast and Podcastle. She is also the Vice President of Amateur Licensing at Musical Company and by night can be spotted belting show tunes in the West Village. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 is brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters Chris Cueto, the Bove family, and Jean Marie Kennedy. 
Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. Degamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes, or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.